Okay, so you're being recorded. It's telling me to uh, avoid it by telling you you're being recorded. Oh, hang on a second. Let me check with my lawyer and see, confirm whether or not this is acceptable. <laughs> Welcome to Conversation on Tap, a quirky podcast that seeks to promote intelligent dialogue in an age of echo chambers and self-segregation. Pull up a stool, pour a glass of tasty beer, and join us each week as we talk about all the topics that you were told not to discuss in Blind Company. My name is Jose. Yo soy Joel. And this week we are joined by our colleague Luke Laurie. You can find him uh, on Twitter at Luke Laurie Games. Um, and we're going to talk about the coronavirus or COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, can't wait. We are being inundated with, um, well, this is historical. This is historical. We are definitely in the middle of it right now. It's crazy. And, you know, the three of us were off work. Schools in our county were closed. So all the students are home and we're kind of doing distance learning with our students. Yeah. It is new and interesting times. We are in uncharted waters here. but uh, So as we sit here and have this discussion about the coronavirus, we are drinking Corona Extra. I think everyone knows what Corona is. I mean, we don't need, a, in, 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 uh, we don't need like an in-depth discussion on the, on the drink itself. But have it at a barbecue, put some lime on. Super good. And yeah. we are not most definitely not making light of the situation we understand the severity of the issue actually it, and not like this guy who wears the uh, gas mask in <laughs> in the halls of congress <laughs> yeah oh my goodness these people but uh corona actually put out a statement out because their stocks or their income declined people were in some way associating corona the alcoholic beverage with the virus Jeesh. so this is a, a tip and a nod in the direction of Corona. Go ahead and drink. Relax. Drink responsibly. Help Corona and help all your favorite businesses right now. Buy uh, gift cards. That's a, one idea to help. But man, I feel for them. Oh, yeah, it's a tough time. Now for the segment of our show that we call Fred Talks. In this uh, segment of our show, Jose and I will each share one thing that we are passionate about for two minutes, though we tend to be chatterboxes. So that is not a strict time limit. This week, Jose is going to talk about... I kind of wanted to talk about the global population of uh, Catholics. And what kind of motivated this topic was the fact that uh, the coronavirus is so global. Approximately... 1.3 billion Catholics in the world, um, spanning five continents. Did you know the country with the most Catholics? Was Let me take a guess. Go ahead. Brazil. Yes. You I nailed it. I, I kind of knew that. I think the second most might also be um, in South America. Is it Argentina or no? Ooh, take a guess. You're close, though. Oh, Chile? No. Colombia? Venezuela? Mexico, of course. Mexico. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, so in Brazil, they have 126 million Catholics. That's 12% of the total global population of Catholics. Mexico is behind them with 96. Philippines has 76. The U.S. is fourth with 75 million. Italy has 49 million. Wow. And on and on and on. Um, there's even more and more um, 
Catholics in uh, Africa, the continent of Africa, mm -hmm. is, is a growing has a growing population of Catholics as well. Yeah. So I wanted to connect this kind of to the idea that um, this is a global church, a global faith, and around the world we're confronting a global virus. Yeah, it's we crazy. Uh, may or may not get into uh, religion's role in the coronavirus epidemic, but uh, it definitely has a place. But man, mm -hmm. with people not being able to meet, it's going to be interesting to see how churches do it. Yeah, our uh, last Sunday, our priest came out and said that the Archbishop of Los Angeles had uh, basically stated that the obligation for attending Mass was waived for the next month. Good for him because there's these, I think it's more likely to be a fundamentalist. And this guy that mm -hmm. I saw in the news today was a full-on fundamentalist, just fully flouting any kind of rule to stay away from yeah. groups over 10. I mean, huge, really closely, um, close together congregation. Yeah. And uh, they're hurting other people. Well, we're, we have, um, like at our parish, for example, we live stream masses. Right on. So you can watch it and... Yeah, you can find them online. If you are Catholic and don't want to go to Mass because of the coronavirus, find a live stream. Let's Yeah, so let's get into it. This is yeah. going to be a great, great topic today. We have a great guest. Yes. All right, so for this segment of our show, we are joined by the illustrious Luke Laurie. So why don't you go ahead and just tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Uh, well, um, Luke Laurie, I, um, I'm a teacher. Um, I work with y'all, and uh, I also design board games, and I uh, like to think of myself as a polymath. I, I dabble in a little bit of everything. And you would be remiss if you didn't tell us that you are our district's, um, what's your official capacity with our union? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm our grievance rep chair. So I handle the major grievances where members believe uh, that they've been harmed by actions of the district. And you do such a great job with that. And I also should mention as well that you um, were an Einstein fellow and you worked in Washington, D.C. for a year. Uh, yeah, so let's see. That was uh, 2006, 2007. I worked on Capitol Hill. Um, I was an Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellow, and uh, there's a handful of those fellows in Capitol on Capitol Hill and in various government agencies every year. Um, they're all math and science teachers, and uh, so I had the privilege of doing that. I worked on uh, science issues, education issues. Uh, believe it or not, I also worked on um, appropriations on things like Homeland Security, INS, uh, water issues, all kinds of crazy stuff. And I worked in the office of uh, Congressman Mike Honda, who represented the 15th District, uh, which at the time was uh, around San Jose, uh, Cupertino, uh, and Gilroy. I think you're, I say expert, but you're the most knowledgeable person I know on this issue. Yeah. Absolutely. So what issue are you speaking of? Well, of course. Now, speaking of that question, is it okay to call it coronavirus or do we have to call it COVID-19? Well, we should call it coronavirus because Joel and I are drinking delicious golden Coronas. Yeah, so. very appropriate. What are you drinking, Luke? What do you got? Uh, 
so um, I thought the day called for a, um, a scotch, and so I've got the Aaron malt. Um, my go-tos are usually Islay scotches. Um, I like beers, too. I generally, um, I mean, I'll, I'll drink a Corona once in a while with a lime, but uh, like uh, lagers, I like um, Pilsners, I like porters and stouts occasionally. We had such a good time at your house the other night drinking single malts, by the way. Thank you for that. Good. That was very fun. Oh, yeah. My favorite, by the way, from that setting. That um, was a. What year was that Oban? That was an Oban 14, I think. That was uh, outstanding. Mm, loved it. And then also, um, to go back to your question, uh, Joel, uh, coronavirus. I believe it's called Corona because of the way that the proteins are arranged, but it's called COVID, which I think is short for Corona Virus. I don't know what the D stands for. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they uh, it goes by several different names, but um, the main reason for the names is to distinguish the virus from other viruses because, um, you know, viruses are kind of like the way they name stars, like stars out there, the ones that aren't the common ones, um, they're named like with numbers. And so, um, or galaxies or other astronomical objects. So no one like on Earth would know unless you're a real astronomer, like the difference between uh, M32 and M33 or something yeah. like that. And this one, it's, it's actual proper name, uh, it's going to blow your mind, is SARS-CoV-2. Right. And so it, it's, <laughs> it, its name is SARS. And uh, so that would be really confusing to everybody because they would be like, well, SARS? No, we already had that. Um, and now people, you know, people like will do casual Google searches and they'll get on there and they'll be like, well, okay, I'm going to look for a coronavirus. And then they find out, well, there's a bunch of coronaviruses and they're very common. Um, and it's kind of like saying mammal, um, right. there's a lot of different mammals. <laughs> and so this is, when we, everybody says coronavirus right now or COVID-19, we're talking about one very specific virus. We're not talking about all the different COVID, or excuse me, all the different coronaviruses. We're not talking about other forms of SARS, and we're most certainly not talking about flus. And um, right. some of the flus right now are caused by viruses that are similar, and we we call things that are not the traditional flu the flu also. So essentially, there's like how we talk about getting sick versus how scientists and medical uh, um, medical scientists might be talking about uh, viruses, contagion, and so on. And they're totally different languages, essentially. Yeah. Your knowledge, though, brings up something that we got to just say from the outset, which is we're not experts here. Although right. Luke sounds like one, and you're probably way more expert than we are. And oh, right. So everything That's, that we're saying with a huge grain of salt. Uh, right. <laughs> search it up for yourself. So not only that is it appears that uh, there's alcoholic consumption going on in this podcast. And um, a little bit. That's it's a fairly acceptable thing for us. We've been working super hard. These have been some of the most stressful days of my career over the last couple of weeks. Um, and uh, the unexpected challenges that we've had to face are incredible. But yeah, in terms of like, um, high quality and accurate content. Um, people should be going to the um, the health agencies, like their county health agency, 
uh, health department, their state health department, or the CDC or the World Health Organization, and they should be looking at at prime sources on all of these things because while they they are incredibly complicated issues, the kinds of things that we are supposed to do are for the most part black and white and fairly straightforward. So. I think it's safe for us to uh, talk about those kinds of things, what we should do or can do, and how you kind of optimize your prevention of contagion or your prevention of spreading the virus yourself. Um, I think we can confidently talk about those things, not necessarily the details and nuances of the virus itself. Yeah. And uh, speaking of that, Jose and I, although we are, you know, in the same room, we're, we're staying six feet apart and we're as much as possible on surfaces constantly. So I um, hope everybody else is doing that. People have yeah. made such a mistake throughout this whole thing, not taking it seriously. Yeah. And, and this is your first podcast where we're doing it uh, um, via Skype right now. So um, I'm, I'm a couple of miles away or a few miles away because I wasn't actually willing to be in the same room with you guys. And it, it's Social not because distancing. It's, yeah, it's not because of coronavirus. It's just that I didn't want to be around you. <laughs> no, I, I get it. People feel that way about me all the time. We can. Uh, That's cool. Okay, it, you know what? Uh, can we start from the start? I, I, yeah. Do you guys know when they think this started? I don't in know. Back, according to this Wired magazine article, uh-huh. I should cite my sources. Uh, back in January seventh is when the Chinese officials uh, first uh, made it be known. I thought that it started literally a couple months ago. Yeah. And so China's been getting a lot of grief, and I think it's okay to give them grief, but I don't think it's okay to give Chinese people grief. And we're right. not separating those two issues. It's super frustrating for me to hear people saying, well, no, we can't give China grief for their response, but we're giving Trump grief for his shenanigans. Right. I think, according to what I have here, China didn't even alert the World Health Organization that there was a problem. Uh, with their coronavirus until what December of 2019? Well, and so for who? This, it's more like it was in January, but that was the World Health Organization. Yeah, that was the WHO. So I mean, how long had it been going on? Well, I've heard. Uh, I heard they the first person might have been in, in mid or late November. Okay, uh-huh. again, grain of salt. But it's been around for a while. Yeah, uh, part of the. Part of the name there, that 19 in COVID-19, comes from the fact that it's a virus that was first discovered in 2019. Ah, okay. Oh, okay, that makes or sense. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, and then it's, so it came out of, apparently, from what I have here, it emerged in Wuhan, China, and uh, I guess it was part of um, a larger family of coronavirus, which we discussed earlier, which uh, was spread amongst non-humans, like animals. And what they believe, from what I'm seeing, is that uh, it somehow was transmitted from like bats to humans. Is that so, accurate? Um, according to articles that uh, my wife and I were taking a look at, it kind of went, um, supposedly, um, bats to an animal called a civet. Um, and the civet is... If you take a look at uh, pictures on the internet of a civet, it looks kind of like a cat and kind of like a raccoon. And they're eaten in China in uh, as kind of an exotic food. And so apparently the virus was able to move from the bats to the civets to humans. Now, it turns out that uh, from things that I've read is it's common for things like a coronavirus 
to move from an animal to a human. However, it's rare for it to move from an animal to a human and then be able to transfer between humans. That's a that's a rare occurrence, and it requires a certain kind of shift uh, in that virus. And when we talk about changes in viruses, of course, we're talking about uh, genetic mutations or some kind of change in the genes that allows it to do something that gives it a structure, a uh, physical structure that it didn't have before. I've got an analogy for how this, how these coronaviruses uh, look and and work that I think you'll appreciate. So. Um, when, when I went to school when I was a kid and we talked about viruses, even in college, uh, uh, 25, uh, 30 years ago, we talked about viruses. You're talking about like a dot basically on a piece of paper it would be displayed as a dot or a slightly longer thing. And we, we didn't really have a really clear picture of what viruses looked like back then. And now we have these exquisitely detailed three-dimensional images. And you're seeing them all over the web. Of Like everybody knows, like they see a picture of this ball with these kind of little things coming out of it. Uh, uh, yeah. And it looks kind of like a, a mine from World War yeah. uh, II, like a ship mine. Um, but I like to think of it kind of like... Um, you know when you're you're going through like the weeds, um, chaparral, and you get those like round pointy stickers that stick to your socks, and uh, so it's like it's like this round thing with all these spikes all over it, and then you got to stop and you got to pull them out of your your pants and your socks and everything, and um, or even those worse ones where they actually have these spikes that'll even stick into the tires of your bicycle. The coronavirus is like that, and basically where it's sticking is to the lining of your your lungs and so you breathe in these tiny things that are like thousands of times smaller than those stickers that stick to your socks and they're going into your lungs they stick there then they inject dna they kind of take apart the cell and reuse the cell to make more of themselves and while they're at it they they damage all this tissue that starts releasing fluid and and you get pneumonia and um, it's, a, it's a horrific pneumonia that leads to respiratory failure. A lot of folks have the constitution and have kind of the, the luck with this virus that it, it gives them flu-like symptoms and their own body takes care of it. Because that's kind of the natural course that we have with viruses. Our, our bodies are able to, to fight back against the virus and, and win. I mean, that's the you you generally either either win against the virus or you die. Um, right. There there's some viruses that'll that kind of stay with you and have long lasting effects, but a lot of viruses it's kind of either uh, one or the other. And the coronavirus is pretty good at causing that harm that can lead to that that high mortality rate. Hey Luke, I have a question. Uh, right before December, I had this gnarly gnarly chest cold, and I have very very minor asthma. And I was sucking on my inhaler during that time. And every night going to bed, Chris would be like, dang, are you okay? I'd be like, <gasps> was there any chance, and other people have remarked on this, that I had it or other people had it early? Or do we know for sure that it's come from China um, since then? Well, as an amateur um, podcast guest, I will diagnose <laughs> you right now with COVID-19. You had it, for sure. I'm no, just kidding. <laughs> Basically... There's almost no way to know, but it's incredibly unlikely um, based on based on where the cases were globally at the time. But your story about 
I was sick in December. Everybody was sick in December. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and we so what our, bra- our brains are always doing is we're always, we're always pattern. We're always pattern making. And so yeah. we're always thinking like, Oh, am I part of this? Have mm-hmm. I, have I already come down with it? It makes perfect sense to try to think that you're part of the big story going on, whether or not you are. So probably not, but So if you have asthma, that's an interesting one because asthma is super common and asthma is a lung disease. And as a lung disease, it's one of the listed risk factors for uh, serious illness as a result of of COVID-19. And that's just one of the others. Um, So I think it's 101 degree temperature. Right. Uh, and then breathing problems, shortness of breath. Those symptoms, yeah. And then, of course, risk factors are diabetes, uh, oh, yeah. asthma, um, what else? Obesity. Well, being over the age. There you go. That, yeah, yep. old age. Yeah, the age The age is a big one. Um, some of those other things naturally go along with age, too. But, yeah, there's there's a lot of different risk factors, and it's hard to know. And what's incredibly frustrating, and probably jumping on to another topic, but there are folks with risk factors who – are experiencing symptoms and there's so many people right now who are experiencing serious symptoms that if you're only experiencing minor symptoms a lot of folks cannot get tested even right. if they're suspecting that right now they might be infected well, i think there's also people who are maybe hypochondriacs right or they're concerned that they have it and they're going to the doctor seeking tests and they're perfectly well maybe not perfectly fine but they're they're not you know, infected by the coronavirus. But do you, do you guys see uh, resistance amongst older people to believe in it for one and to take measures for two? The latter. I, I mean, I totally do. I mean, I'm yeah. dealing with that right now, and it's so frustrating because they're the ones that should be more, you know, yeah. concerned. We were trying to convince Christina's grandmother to not want to go places. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 you're bound to the house. You're not going anywhere. Well, I can, no. <laughs> Thank God they closed the Chumash, because that's that's a favorite place to go. It's also a Fox News phenomenon, because way more older people watch Fox News, and so they're way less likely to believe it. Well, interestingly now, Fox News seems to be 100% on board and is uh, has completely changed their tune. And and by the way, I'm I'm often um, extremely critical of Fox News in general, but uh, I I will say that one of the best news shows there is is actually on Fox News, and that's uh, that's Fox News Sunday, and uh, it's just an absolutely outstanding, high quality news show. And uh, yeah, sure, there people are allowed to speak and say whatever they feel like, but uh, it's also one where uh, you really don't get bias from the news persons themselves on that show. Uh, because right. is, isn't that Chris Wallace? Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, Chris Wallace is uh, is kind of an old school journalist where he's he's just looking for facts. He's just looking for truth. But he's got the courage also to shout down somebody who just spouts ridiculousness. Yeah, or at least ask yeah. them those tough questions. But uh, the, they don't answer them generally. <laughs> um, but at least at least they yeah. get asked. My hero was always Shep, Shepard Smith. Yeah. And he's gone on. He's gone from that network now. But. Hard for them to remain. Did you guys see the video that was put together? Uh, the huge, you know, uh, about face done by all these talking heads on Fox. Uh-uh. They compared on video their statements about a week ago or two, 
uh, to what they've said re- recently. It's shocking how they yeah. changed. I think the Washington Post put that one together. Um, yeah. It was it was kind of like uh, before and after uh, what they said two weeks ago versus what they're saying today. And yeah, absolute complete shift. Um, I mean, we're seeing that with a lot of folks. Who we're not seeing that with is people that are researchers and scientists. Their their attitudes and their behaviors and their approach to this really hasn't changed much at all. We don't have a lot of that. You know how in uh, you're watching these like apocalyptic science fiction movies, <laughs> and uh, there's like one person who's shouting from the rooftops or attempting to, and everyone shuts them down and no one listens to them. In this case, it was more like this giant fraction of people kind of understood the risk, and then everyone in power didn't. Yeah. And and it's kind of like everyone in power doesn't actually have the knowledge base or the qualifications to understand science. And that's that's a problem. Well, isn't the fact that it was uh, politically risky have a huge... I mean, they were going to get a lot of shit from their constituents uh, for, for doing the types of things they needed to do early, shut down businesses, stuff like that. Right. And that just... that This is such a great case of where science and politics do not mix. And we have got to... Maybe we've learned our lesson. I doubt it. In the future, trust Definitely. science. You know, but I doubt we've learned our lesson yeah. here, which is sad to say. Yeah. Scientists don't necessarily make great politicians, oh. though, either. Oh, um, And they're not... Because... They, they don't necessarily communicate well, but if it, to push policy, you have to have a degree of dogmatism to get anyone on board. Um, right. You can't you can't go around saying, "Well, I think there's a marginal chance that uh, a marginal increase in taxes might have a <laughs> marginal difference on the economy." But I, it's just speculative at this point. Right. You're not going to push any kind of policy with the kind of language, the kind of the subtle language of science, because science is is honest about what it doesn't know, and and politicians have to be they have to they have to be able to sell ideas in order to get people on board. So my thinking isn't necessarily that we need all of the politicians to be scientists. But we need the politicians to surround themselves with the advisors who have the knowledge that can guide them towards the right decisions. But then and, and also to have the guts sell the to idea. go through it. Yeah. yeah. And sell the idea that they couldn't possibly sell with their kind of scientific jargon and so on. Yeah. I think it's one of the most fascinating aspects of this whole thing is the idea that half measures just don't work. Right. It, and we were not even close to when this came out to, to being able to go full on. But just think how far along we'd be if we were just full on sequestering, you know, a month ago. Well, there's a, a podcast that Luke clued me into called the New York Times, the daily. And there was an episode uh, recently where they, I think they brought in a, a doctor from Italy and he described the whole situation there as a war. And he was basically saying, you guys, you know, you guys being Americans, you guys are a few weeks behind us. And if you don't take drastic steps like quarantining and isolating yourselves in your homes, this is your future. Isn't it funny how we just keep on ratcheting it up instead of doing it all at once like we should? Okay, okay, now it's going to be people who are at risk, make sure you sequester yourself. Right. And now it's going to be everybody in the county. And it's just funny how 
it's so hard for society to take full measures instead of half measures because it's this is totally okay. Let's put this in its place in history. Uh-huh. Where do you guys place it as far as 9/11, as far as Vietnam War, as far as fall for Berlin War, as far as recessions? Before we answer that, can can I jump back to your half measures thing? Yeah. Because so you're familiar with a quote from Churchill. Um, Winston Churchill said, you know, basically the approach to the rising threat of the Nazis was kind of get, keep continuing to give them inches. Um, right. And so Churchill, you know, was trying to um, motivate um, Great Britain to to change their behavior. His quote is, and I'm reading it, says, the era of procrastination of half measures of soothing and baffling expedients of delays is coming to its close. In its place, we are entering a period of consequences. Mm-hmm. And that quote, I think, is enlightening to us because with response to a virus, half measures have the potential to do absolutely nothing. Um, and and pandemic experts know this, and there's like these various kinds of... Um, uh, virus transmission and contagion simulations that you can run. And they include factors like how contagious is the virus, how dense is your population, how much mixing goes on in your population, and all of those different factors um, determine how much this virus is going to spread. And another one is, of course, the, the lethality or the death rate. Mm-hmm. And half measures tend to do nothing when you run those simulations. Um, because a little bit of movement of people can erase a whole bunch of other people not moving. It, it, there's this kind of exponential growth thing that can appear anywhere you have a contagion. So if one person is ignoring the, um, the rules and interacts with another group of people, people who's similarly ignoring, I shouldn't say the rules, I should say the precautions, Right. then you get kind of this explosion where a single person's actions can infect thousands or millions of people um, in terms of how it like cascades through the population. But I actually think some of the messaging that we're getting from health departments, federal government, some of it is because of lack of appreciation for the gravity or how far along the path we are. But I think some of it is also intentional. And the reason why is because to motivate a population to act, if you're too drastic in what you ask them to do, they will resist more. So notice how we were asked by the federal government, um, you know, guidelines that were coming from the CDC and their whole coronavirus task force. At first, we were asked to limit groupings to 250, 250 people then 50 people, and then very shockingly, the very next day, 10 people. Right. Do you think that that was actually on purpose? I do. To help us feel the pain before we believe the reason why. The reason why is I think think they understood the psychology of jumping straight to 10. Mm -hmm. And the 250 and the 50, those are pretty meaningless efforts. Those are not going to interfere with people's mixing. 
Joel, you and I, um, you were talking, we were talking about things like all kinds of events that were still coming up, like potential rock concerts or, you know, going on vacations and all of these things that involve all of these mixings. And until they said like, you know, you shouldn't be in a group of 10 or more. Yeah. (laughs) That's when you can finally start crossing almost everything off of your calendar. Right. But that's exactly, that's the only thing that works. The day before LA shut down all gatherings, my sons went to a huge concert at the forum. And I'm thinking, man, what if there was a super carrier or a super spreader at that, which is probably pretty likely. I mean, that at least a dozen or so got from there. And and of course, it goes exponentially from there. Did you see on the news recently all of these spring breakers flocking to Florida, going to Miami? And the beaches are just swarmed it's with a weird type of millennials. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's weird. And one guy said, I'm going to party. Yeah, I saw that. It's like, dude, what if you get the coronavirus and maybe you're not affected, but you're a carrier and you go home to visit your Nana and your Papa and then you give them the coronavirus and they're dead within, you know, a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it's a, an interesting, a, it's an interesting thing for, um, for everyone to face is to think of themselves, this, this virus one appears to affect some people like very, very little. And two, there's not enough testing for people who aren't showing extreme symptoms to get tested. So that means that it's possible that a vast majority of the people who are infected, we will never know. Um, that's not a guarantee, but that's possible. Um, we probably a lot of folks right now are hearing stories like I've heard where they have family members or friends who are having symptoms but still can't get tested. So I I have a family member in that circumstance. I know other people have family members in those circumstances. And basically now our our medical system is already shifted to be on like they're fully committed to now treating the extremely ill. And they're already moving away from kind of the what could have been the preventative testing to kind of stave off the growth. We're past all that now. I mean, it's fun to do a thought experiment where everybody got tested. Yep. You, you get the uh, results back in a couple of days, let's say, and so you know exactly who to quarantine. Mm-hmm. You know exactly uh, who to go check who has been in contact with that person. Not everybody's going to, you know, but they've already been tested, so you actually don't even need to do that. Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting thought experiment. It almost they solves that, 99% sorry. of our problems. No, yeah. right. Yeah, they say that um, one of the most effective ways of battling the spread of the contagion is if everyone in a population imagines that they are already infected. I love it, yes. Yeah. Because too many people are walking around not worrying about themselves. But it's possible that a person who is contagious is not worrying about themselves. And in the process of not worrying in them about themselves, they're putting themselves in situations where they're infecting everyone around them. Yeah. And it's possible that they themselves might not suffer those ill effects, but in the process lead to tens, hundreds, or thousands of other infections as it drifts through the population because of their carelessness. So if we all imagine that we are the toxic element, then we, we act in a way where we need to be imagining a bubble around ourselves to prevent ourselves from having that contact, that potentially harmful contact with others. That reminds me of a doctor who you both know who was around the corner. And 
she said, Joel, why don't you get the, the flu uh, vaccine every year? Or what is it called? The flu shot every year. Right. I said, yeah, what, 40%, 30% people get sick from it. You know, mild symptoms. It doesn't work on, or maybe it doesn't work on 40%. And now, though, she, she immediately said, no, you're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it for other people. Yeah. And now... I'm going to get it every year because I, I mean, I realize how callous I've been. It's ridiculous. You're a douche. Yeah, no, seriously. Uh, you do, you do that. We do, we do the vaccines for other people. Yeah. And and like we're not individuals here. We're in this big old board right. community. Well, I've got a buddy. Luke and I have a buddy uh, who shall go nameless, but he is of the libertarian ideology, and uh, he did a post where it's like, well. I remember when America had freedom or something along those lines because of uh, all these shelter in place orders that are being, you know, given in San Luis Obispo, potentially Santa Barbara, who knows, and other places. But, and it's because it's an ideology that says, well, me as an individual, I should be allowed to do whatever I want. The government shouldn't tell me to, you know, stay in place or to not go out into large crowds. I really That's my prerogative. In that whole idea, Jose. This idea that this this phenomenon, this crisis, is making is forcing us to realize we're part of a community more than right. any time I think in maybe in the United States history, maybe in world history, it's making us realize we're a community. We have to work together. Our our sociability is our vulnerability. Yeah, really. I would argue that people already knew that, and the evidence that I'll give for that is that while. Some people are describing some of the measures being taken to stave off the coronavirus spread as draconian. By and large, the enforcement isn't isn't physical or real. The yeah. enforcement is informational. And so people are voluntarily closing their businesses, voluntarily not going to work, voluntarily staying in their homes as much as possible voluntarily staying six feet away or more from people, taking all these precautions. And what's remarkable to me to watch is that that's happening without guns being pointed at us, without uh, people in uniform shouting it at us. Um, it's true that it's not perfect. Uh, it's, yeah, true I mean, that, it's true that folks are, are being careless still, but by and large, the, the population's following through. What about these kids, though, on the beach in Florida? I mean, those kids are going to spread it. So, I mean, I totally agree for the most part. It's it's very heartening to see that we can come together. Give them all tickets. There's just, I think we need to be a little bit draconian with those kids who are being just flippant and and, and cavalier with all of our health. Right. Well, Um, and I I totally agree with, it's heartening to see what's going on. It it can happen to, you can have uh, intellectual or um, social bubbles where the norms dictate how people behave. Because, you know, people are going to behave the same way that everyone else around them is behaving. And um, we deliberately went and we we pulled our son out of college as quickly as we could because he was starting to come into contact uh, second degree uh, from people who were being infected. Uh, so he was in a class where they were notified that someone in the class had come into contact with someone who was infected. Um, that that's creeping closer. Um, but in college, uh, you know, he's in a he was in a dorm room with seven people, and there is an inevitability of mixing and an inevitability of close proximity, and that is kind of the norm. 
and and I'm giving the people on the beach uh, a pass for their their naivety, the youth, and the sense of uh, you know you feel you feel impervious, you feel immortal. But I also think that we're making a mistake on messaging about the virus, and the mistake on messaging is the emphasis on how fatal the disease is for older people rather than on the focus on how contagious the virus is. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and we have to bring up the fact that just recently, more and more articles are bringing up the fact that you can die if you're young. You can, there are. Yeah, 30 and 40 year olds are getting it. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think I have some recent stats here globally. 217,539 cases, but only 8,933. I don't want to say but only. That's that's still a lot. But you're not very likely to die, but that's not necessarily to say there won't be long-lasting health implications for yourself or for others. Yeah. I just think it's so interesting, um, the comparison of this to the flu. Uh, the flu, if I'm not mistaken, is something like 0.5% um, lethal. I've heard yeah. that. Numbers as small as 0.1. Yeah. Um, but those numbers vary highly in different populations on Earth. And the principal, one of the principal factors there is the vaccination rate of your population. And so um, you were bringing up earlier about like now you're going to get vaccinated. And this is the kind of thing where hopefully people will shift their attitudes towards vaccinations and understand that... People have been comparing coronavirus to the flu and talking about how deadly the flu is yeah. without acknowledging that the only reason why the flu is as deadly as it is, is because we're not fully vaccinating the population. Right. We have mandatory vaccinations for things like tuberculosis and measles and mumps for all kinds of different jobs and different kinds of positions in society. In various times and in various cultures, there are um, waivers that are granted for religious or other purposes. But this is the kind of thing where I would suspect that you might see legal um, action. You might see legislative movements for things like requiring flu vaccines for children. Because the idea that we can just accept that tens or hundreds of thousands of people are going to die every year because of a given virus puts us in a position where we're not ready to handle the next outbreak of anything else yep. because we're always running threadbare, just keeping up with the cases of the ongoing diseases that we haven't staved out and or stopped. Dan Square against any kind of libertarian idea. Totally. <laughs> it's my right to walk around unvaccinated. But if you run let's, the numbers, let's ahead. give some libertarians some credit. The people are freely choosing to follow a lot of the guidelines that are going on right now. That's and true. you know, hopefully, people aren't going out of their way to deliberately go against it for the sake of freedom. You know, freedom relies on you being alive. Um, and. Yeah. I think the information's getting out there, enough information's getting out there that slowly, nearly every population is going to come around and see what they need to do to do their part. Yeah. Another interesting thing about the comparison to flu is, is it, let's say that, that coronavirus is 2%. Mm-hmm. Let's say it's or 1% deadly. So we have what? Don't we have quarter billion people or is it 3. 350, like 350 million? 350 million, yeah. So if it's, if it's 1%, that's 
of, of maybe half of the people getting it. That's a, almost 2 million people dying. Right. And that's like Fresno gone off the map. Uh, that's on an order of magnitude greater than the flu. And, and a lot of people just aren't getting that. Yeah, I was at Costco, you know, braving the crowds to buy toilet paper and water and all that. When I was standing in line, the lady ahead of me was like, wow, this is crazy. And I was like, I know, I can't believe everyone's hoarding. And she's like, yeah, this is not even a big problem. It's just the flu. They're just telling people, go home and get better. And uh, she's like, it all, and it affects old people, so who cares? They're going to die anyway. <laughs> Jesus. I, I was mortified. I just kind of nodded and went, uh-huh, and then looked away. Do do? Did not want to make eye contact or talk to this person at all. I, I think we should each share our funniest story. Um, but I have one like that, which is we ran into a lady who was basically, um, she'd set up a, a position buy the toilet paper in Trader Joe's. Now, this is at the time, um, this is kind of before a lot of people had really hit full-fledged hoarding. So this is around the middle of the week, I think, uh, last week. Um, by the way, so this recording is on March 19th, and yeah. listeners need to know that if they hear this even a few days later, there are so many things that are going yeah. to be different. Um, it's changing uh, day by day. Like the, those numbers that you gave out, they will be obliterated tomorrow. Yeah. And a week from now, we'll be talking about factors of 10 on those numbers and so on. Yeah. But anyway, this lady had staked a position by the toilet paper, and she was asking for a conversation. She was waiting for someone to do something. And I could see it coming, so I avoided this lady. Um, my wife was a little kinder to her. and uh -huh. And – there was a little like a suggestion, like a conversation about toilet paper. And all of a sudden this lady gets going and she starts talking about how she is prepared for 30 years of apocalypse. Oh, she has wow. buckets full of non-perishable food. She has all the supplies that she needs to survive for 30 years. And the only reason why she's at the store is so she can stock up for additional materials to help other people who didn't adequately prepare for the apocalypse. And then she handed you a pamphlet. <laughs> I walked backwards slowly until I could escape that aisle and get over to the scotch. Yeah, <laughs> not <wow>. today. <laughs> um, my story is not nearly as funny, but right when this was starting, there was a, we had Chromebooks at our school, which are all passed out by now. And I had a kid. The kids are always screwing around with the screens of Chromebooks, and they often will put Chinese characters on the Chromebook. Or I didn't even know if it was Japanese, Korean, or what kind of Asian uh, uh, characters. Some on. China language. And, <laughs> and I said, "Oh shoot! It looks like it's got uh, coronavirus." And the kids were appalled. They were taking it really seriously. And wow! And, and, and I go, "Dude, do you guys think that we should?" Totally stop the joking. I mean, I kind of feel like it's a solve for tough times. I love it. I love I gallows love humor. Oh, so too. that's my. Uh, if you can't joke about it, man, you are really screwed. Yeah. So I think I think joking about it is fine in a social circumstance. I think it's fine on a podcast right now. Like I can see you guys drinking your Coronas, and I know that that was intentional. Oh yes. It's, it, humor it's helps. Humor helps people get through tough times. It's. It's just people expect extraordinary circumstances to feel different from ordinary life, and it doesn't. It, it still feels ordinary. 
Um, it does. You know, right now feels yeah. ordinary to me. And, and I, I'm enjoying myself. Well, I usually we're my family. Usually we're closer, Joel. Yeah. You're sitting right. We're knee to knee. Well, they haven't banned booze, which apparently is something <laughs> they're planning on doing in Fresno itself, which yeah. sounds frightening. No. I don't need a gun, which they're banning, going to ban that too. But I, I would like to have a scotch while I watch the world burn. Yeah, um, the gun lines are going off the charts right now. Oh yeah, yeah, but not the one by by your place. That's closed down now. Yeah, I saw that. When you're talking about like humor, humor needs to not be humor misrepresentation and sarcasm needs to not be in any situation where you're trying to get the accurate information. Right. So about a month ago, I dropped everything in what I was teaching and focused entirely or almost entirely on COVID-19, coronavirus, and viruses in general with my students as a teacher. And um, in all of that instruction, my students were taking it very seriously because I was taking it very seriously. I, I wasn't bringing into class, and in fact, I was trying to stamp down the jokes. You know, a kid comes in and says, uh, Mr. Lori, can Corona beer cure the coronavirus? No, that, that, that doesn't happen. Um, so what you got to do is you have to treat any kind of instruction on this and any kind of public messaging on this has to be super clear, super factual, but it also has to be simple. It also has to be in yeah. comprehensible language. Uh, I don't know that anyone is doing this super well right now uh, because yeah, I really can't think of anyone who's doing this super well. Our governor, um, Gavin Newsom, is extremely intelligent, but he cannot divorce himself from academic language when he speaks. And because of that, I worry that his public messaging isn't clear enough and simple enough for ordinary people to understand. Yeah. If he was using plain spoken words, um, the, that don't require you to have a college education to understand, I think he would be more effective at communicating the gravity and also focusing, uh, with a degree of repetition on what really needs to occur. Um, yeah. do, you, do you guys think that we need blue collar translators right next to politicians? <laughs> like the, like yeah. the sign language interpreter. Right ne- yeah. Right next to do some. Actually, so if I was New Jersey, I would I would get Bruce Springsteen to stand <laughs> yes. right next to the governor, and he would say it in a way that everyone can understand and and relate to, and and I do think that that's something that's missing because ordinary folks are feeling like this is somebody else's problem. Yeah, but then you can go too ordinary, and then you have the president of the United States <laughs> getting up and saying. This is the China flu. This is the China virus. <laughs> it's like it's beautiful. Well, it's and, just it's just as fair now to call it the Italian virus or the Republican yeah. virus because um, exactly. I mean, people caught this virus at Mar-a-Lago. It appears, uh-huh. and um, and or the um, the CPAC meeting of conservatives at Washington D.C. Um, caught it there. Viruses don't care about borders. They don't care about counties. They don't care about countries. They don't, they don't have any level of intention at all. They're not even considered a living thing. They're a particle 
that wreaks havoc and loves to make more of itself and it has no regard for any life on earth whatsoever. And isn't it like the ultimate sort of enemy of Trump? Because this issue is absolutely unspinable. I read an article called This Issue Trump Cannot Spin. And he tried. It was so yeah. funny to, to watch him try to spin it. And it just rolled over him and smashed yeah. him. It's he a, looks, the turnabout is shocking. He looks incompetent yeah. because he is. Yeah. And profoundly ignorant. Back to where is this in world history? Oh yeah, I don't. I don't know. Oh yeah, we were on that about twenty minutes ago. I apologize for derailing you. (laughs) No, that was a good tangent. But I don't know. Before we go on to that, (laughs) seriously, where is it in history? Uh, I a while back thought it was number two after nine eleven. I think it's number one in my lifetime. Oh wow. Um, I was born right during the Vietnam War, and maybe that uh, might be higher. But but this is darn close. It, as far as people dying, this is going to kill more people than the Vietnam War. Uh, it will affect the economy maybe more than the Vietnam War. Uh, but I have a feeling the economy is going to come back. Maybe if we get back to the economy uh, a little later, I'm really interested to talk about that. But your guys' opinion. Yeah, I don't know, Luke. What do you think? Um, well, with regards to the Vietnam War, um, uh, I think my initial thoughts were in terms of American perspectives on it that it was approaching that level of magnitude. But the Vietnam War wasn't necessarily a global phenomenon. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were in West Africa or something like that, you might not have even noticed much going on regarding the Vietnam War. And this is more of a global event. And we're so preoccupied right now with the growth of the virus in the United States. We're watching it in Italy. We're watching it in Spain and various parts of Europe. The virus hasn't really touched Africa yet, oh, and it's going to. Yeah. And so, what we're looking at Mexico or India either? Not much in Mexico. No. So, so we we haven't seen it hit populations that are potentially very vulnerable populations because of the lack of modern, updated, and um, an adequate supply of healthcare. And so we could be, and and this is entirely speculative, we could be looking at coronavirus being a decade-long thing. Mm. Um, We we talk about the timeframes right now in the United States. People are starting to come to grips with the idea that we will have a very intense period of three, four, or five months in the United States. In the first talks of what we're going to shut down, we're talking, people were saying, like, we'll shut down for a week or two weeks, (laughs) reluctant to even shut down for the month. And there's a more honest perspective now where you're looking at an arc based on various kinds of models where peak hospitalizations may not be until the end of June and early July in the United States. Yeah. End of June and early July puts us at way past the end of the school year, past the ends of uh, college um, graduations and so on. And that's at the point of peak harm. And then you have the decline after that. But that's just the United States. This thing can spring up and grow and expand in other parts of the world. And we're already at a point where one of the most significant issues is that it is affecting so many populations worldwide that we don't have adequate medical 
materials, medical supplies, medical, like these respirators that are required, like the masks that are required. Mm -hmm. A lot of times what we can do is we can focus our energy in a geographic region to stop a pandemic. Ebola was stopped in part by nations all over the world sending resources to Africa. It's It was stamped down there, by and large. It, it failed to catch hold in the United States. It failed to catch hold in various other populations. This one's not like that. We're going to be too busy fighting it off in the United States to stop it from spreading in Africa, to yeah, stop it, it from happening in India. It seems like one of the uh, one of the qualities, if I can call it that, of this virus is that it, people can spread it without having symptoms, and that is one of the. If you're a virus, that is awesome for you, man. This idea of flattening the curve, which we haven't gotten into yet, it, it's really we're going to flatten the curve, but then the curve is coming back like a, it's it, it, the like a time, roller coaster. Yeah, did you see that? In the, no. Times? Yeah, interesting. Um, it's going to be a roller coaster, like Luke said, and we're going to revisit it many times, probably. A really interesting question is whether or not, like the Spanish flu, by the way, which happened in what state, which started in what state? A lot of people think that started in Spain. It happened, it started in Kansas, huh. you know? And so, I don't know, there was a senator who said, like, all these things are starting in, in China. we got to stop that. And it's just like the Spanish flu, and he didn't realize that it started. It started in Kansas. But anyway, yeah. Well, that's like chow mein being invented in San Francisco. Um, right. Americans want to take credit for everything good and want to blame everything bad on everybody else. Yeah. And yeah, the 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 misrepresentations about what a virus means. You know, it's it's kind of arbitrary where viruses pop up. Everybody globally has to deal with it. Well, and, and as we're sitting here and having this discussion, the three of us, you know, we were basically sent home because our public schools were closed, and uh, our students were told schools are closed until April third. And I think all of us, kind of behind the scenes, recognize, as you said earlier, you know, we might not see our kids for the rest of the school year. And so, you know, I would put that at almost. 100%. Almost 100%. But I may be wrong, but if I had to guess, I wouldn't. So that's affecting parents. That's affecting us as teachers. You know, I'm coming up with lessons and whatnot, you know, to give my students, you know, on Google Classroom or through other platforms. But I'm, I am not going to see them more than likely face-to-face -face for the rest of the school year. And, 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 and they probably home. shouldn't, too. True. Uh, that, that's kind of where we are. Um, uh, let me ask you a question. So... Uh, I've been patting myself on the back a bunch that I could see this coming from a mile away. I didn't, I wasn't successful in pushing or motivating anyone to do anything any differently. I think I'm part of a pretty large group of people that feels kind of the same way. Um, a week before we closed the schools, uh, the Monday morning came in and I, I spoke to some people, uh, some fellow staff members, and I said, I don't know why we're still here. My thought was, a week before we actually closed, my thought was, we should be closing now, and we should be planning on how we're going to do this, how we're going to get by with the remote learning, how are we going to distribute materials. Now, the situation now is, School districts, the county health departments, and so on, they've all come around to realizing this week um, that things needed to be closed at the beginning of the week. 
they realized this way, way too late. On yeah, Friday, this was going to be our first day off. Today. today would be our no yesterday. Yesterday, right? Yesterday was. Oh our yeah, day. and that's that's a joke because yeah. uh, we're at we're probably approaching a thousand cases in California. We could potentially have hundreds of cases in our county that we don't know about. We're still waiting on over a hundred tests to come back right now. And the only people our county is testing are people who are showing chronic symptoms. They're not testing anybody on the street. But a a week before all this happened, I could see this coming. And as it was coming, I realized I needed to start dialing things down with my students. And the very last day, ironically, I actually missed part of the day because I took my daughter to the doctor because of a cough. And I wasn't going to, I would never normally take my daughter to the doctor for a cough, but the gravity of the situation, I wanted her to be looked at by a professional who determined she didn't have any of the COVID-19 symptoms. Mm -hmm. But I only missed part of the day, but for the rest of the day, when I was in class, I said goodbye to my students Mm -hmm. on Friday. I said, in case we're not here on Monday, Every single person I've talked to did not do that because they had no heads up that they were not going to see their students again. I told my students more than likely we're going to close soon. And then by lunch, we had figured out that Wednesday we were closing. And I told my students more than likely, I'm not even going to see you Monday. And sure enough. But the problem was that you were correct, Luke. You saw this coming. And the problem, as I had said, I think to you and to others, was our district and a lot of other businesses or you know departments would not shut down until there was a confirmed case. Yeah, and uh, and that was a mistake because there was no testing going on. But I actually don't fault our district because they were really taking guidance from the county. Right. The county was taking guidance from the health department. The health department was following the guidance that came from the state. Everybody was doing exactly what they were told. But the guidance from the state on March seventh said, don't close schools until you have a confirmed case in your school or in your district. And that was terrible advice. Yeah. That's not going to happen anymore in the right. future of the United States. By then it was too late. Think, yeah. It was too we late. We all got together at lunch on Friday. We and did. We were all ticked <laughs> that supposedly we were coming back on Monday. And then... You know, I think we all started writing letters saying, hey, come on. Now, I didn't know that we would be closing like Luke did or we would be in such severe straits like Luke did early. I this I got to say, this kind of caught me by surprise. In fact, the fact that we we're probably not coming back this year or there's a decent chance that we're not coming back this year also surprised me. Did, yeah. you, guys, did you guys think that we would not be teaching again? And that's kind of sad not to say I had a great bunch of kids this year and I'm going to be you know, bummed if I don't get to see them again. Enough people had mentioned, I think you and um, another co-host of our show, Jose Segura, mentioned that as well. And I was, I started coming around. So at first I thought, well, we'll be gone for a few weeks. We'll come back. But then enough really smart people said, no, it's it's likely we won't come back. Mm-hmm. Is when I started to kind of come around to that reality. Yeah. It's, we who are educated are still being slapped in the face by some of these, you know. Yeah. This is the kind of thing where, um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, everybody on this podcast has a college degree, but these are those, um, those fringe circumstances that catch even the experts off guard. The only people who really, really could have seen this coming 
are the people who study pandemics um, and the folks who they've had experience fighting pandemics in the past, and also the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Richard Burr, who three weeks oh, ago yeah. sold all of his stocks and wow. made millions of dollars oh, and in man. private conversations was recorded telling people he knew this was coming. Um, this, is, wow. this is the kind of thing where history will not be kind to people like that. Right. History will not be kind wow. to the weekend that Trump spent golfing. The weekend that Trump spent golfing is the weekend that all of the information should have been distributed to the American public. It took about nine, ten more days for him to be standing with the actual experts telling us what's really going on and what we're really facing. There is even a tweet by the president about, um, you know, the, uh, the uh, uh, give me the context, help me out. It's the, this the one where he talked fiddling, about the fiddling while oh, yeah. Rome burns. Oh, that's right. Yes. Right. That's the uh, president, by the way. I want to I want to really quickly uh, drive everyone's attention to this gal in Florida who was actually the first reporter to uh, to report on this. She's got her own blog. It's not an actual reporter. She, well, I guess in these days, a blogger is a reporter. She's got a blog called Flu Tracker. She caught it on December 31st. You know, and she, that's her that's her passion. To, to catch these things, and what she does is she monitors all these, especially China, where a lot of these. Um, well, China is the reason. The reason China is is the epicenter for these because they have such close contact with each other, and they often, you know, they're just such a huge population. But she caught it. This gal's name is Sharon Sanders. The blog is called Flu Trackers. Way back in December thirty first, she just noticed this huge. Uh, this huge mass of, of information coming out of China and, and all this, um, all this, I guess, texting and messaging amongst each other, and she caught it. Yeah, so um, the meme you're talking about is um, Trump had retweeted a meme of himself playing the violin, <laughs> and the, the words say, my next piece is called Nothing Can Stop What's Coming. He himself retweeted that. Oh, man. Yeah. So the, that's the kind of thing where it, it, the president is extremely good at redirecting people's attention. Like a like a clever magician, um, you don't notice what's going on in the right hand because the left hand is so interesting. And so you, you your attention is turned and you miss what happened. But I think history is going to remember Trump for one thing. They're not going to remember him for all of these other things that have been scandalous before. They're not going to remember him for the Mueller investigation. They're going to remember him for him saying that coronavirus was a hoax. Yeah. On March 7th, he said, I'm not concerned at all. On March 2nd, he said, we're talking about a much smaller range of deaths than from the flu. On March 4th, he said, it's very mild. On February 27th, he says, it's going to disappear one day. It's like a miracle to disappear. On February 26th, you say, we're going down, not up. We're going very substantially down, not up. Yeah. February 25th, Trump tweeted, crying Chuck Schumer and mocked Schumer for arguing that Trump should be more aggressive, et cetera. I could go, I've got There's, literally one, two, three, four. I've got about a dozen more if you guys want to, but yeah. Here's, here's another one. He tweeted this out on uh, March 9th. So last year, 37,000 Americans died from the common flu. 
it averages between 27,000 and 70,000 per year. Nothing is shut down. Life and the economy go on. At this moment, there are 546 confirmed cases of coronavirus with 22 deaths. Think about that. What's so shocking about that is people are casually talking about the deaths from the flu in the United States as if that's inevitable. Right. Yeah. And it's it's not. It's not yeah. inevitable. It's true that the flu kills people with prior conditions also. You know, sometimes people who are on their deathbed already have immune system issues are killed by the flu. And and so the flu can be kind can be kind of like uh, the straw on the camel's back in someone's life. But at the same time, there are a lot of flu deaths that occur because the flu is essentially, excuse me, it's essentially 100% saturated in the, in the population to where almost everybody becomes exposed to the flu almost every mm-hmm. year. And the, that makes it the only thing that stops it is vaccinated people. Mm-hmm. And we are an under-vaccinated population. The vaccination rates vary annually, and oftentimes they're only as low as 60%. But here's one of the things you need to consider is the flu vaccine, unbeknownst to the common population, is actually a vaccine against multiple viruses. Right. Yeah. Because we, what we call the flu is more than one thing. And so when we're talking, when we're comparing the flu to COVID-19, we're comparing COVID-19, which is a single virus, to the flu, which is actually several viruses. It's primarily three viruses, mm-hmm. but there's all kinds of other viruses that result in other similar ailments that we also just call the flu. So we lump everything flu-like into the flu category. So people dying of the flu didn't die of one single virus. And so that's an artificial comparison. We could just as easily call COVID-19 another flu yeah. and say that what's going on right now is another is a flu epidemic. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't change our response. Our response should still be, how do we prevent the spread of a virus for which there is no existing vaccine? Did you guys hear that, by the way? Speaking of vaccines, they're already doing human tests, which is a huge, huge expediting of the whole. I mean, usually it takes way longer than that. That's kind of cool. I mean, I haven't I, heard that. I'm feeling with this one, we're going to throw everything at it. I I don't know if the va- if the human tests yet are on the vaccine or if they're just with existing. My understanding is they're with existing antiviral medications. Okay, so I think what they're I think what they're trying to do is take (laughs) things that they know work for other things and see if they will work for this. Okay. Mm. So let me tell you a story. I, I've actually had pneumonia. Have, have either of you ever had pneumonia? Oh, thank God. No, no. (laughs) So no, no one knows how I got this. Um, and my first experience with it was, um, back in those days I had February's off because of the way our school schedule went. And I was in February, I went camping in Big Sur. And while I was camping in the night, it was cold. I expected it to be cold. I was ready for that. But I wasn't cold. I was freezing. I could not get warm. No matter what I did, I was just absolutely freezing. I felt okay the next day. We went for a hike. And I came home from camping 
and I had a really bad headache. Now, you might be thinking, okay, if I was really cold and stuff like that, that sounds feverish. Um, I come back and I have a headache, and the headache is in the back of my neck, like Mm -hmm. the top of my neck where my spine meets my skull. So my thought was I had meningitis. So meningitis is like an infection. Uh, You know, you can get it in your spine and your spinal fluid and stuff like that. It can cause a bunch of pain and everything. Very Um, dangerous. Yeah, my cousin had it. So at this time, I had no trouble breathing whatsoever. I'd gone on a hike. I could walk around. I wasn't noticing. I didn't even have a cough. I went to the doctor for my headache, my headache that normal painkillers wouldn't take away. My doctor took his stethoscope and did old school, you know, just stethoscope on my chest and on my back. And within five minutes, he's like, you have pneumonia. Wow. That's great. And I was like, my, my thought was what pneumonia? (laughs) I'm like, no, you're supposed to tell me I have meningitis. He's like, no, you have pneumonia. And I said, well, why is my symptom a headache? Why, what's going on here? And he said, basically you can have any number of symptoms anywhere in your body as a result of oxygen deprivation that results from your your lungs having fluid in it. So he determined from the stethoscope listening to my lungs that I had fluid in my lungs and I had pneumonia. He prescribed me antibiotics. It turns out, in retrospect, the antibiotics he prescribed me were too weak. So what happened was I went home, I took the antibiotics, I rested, and about three days later, I was essentially paralyzed. I couldn't move at all. Wow. And what had happened was um, the antibiotics were not sufficient to stop the bacteria that was infected in my lungs. And this was a bacterial infection. And COVID-19 is a viral infection. So antibiotics don't actually work on it at all. And so um, I went to the ER, and while I was in the ER, I, I barely could move at all. They're rolling me around to different parts of the hospital. Now imagine today, right now with COVID-19, if they treated me the same way, I would have exposed dozens of people. Yeah. They, they were rolling me around in a wheelchair. No one was wearing any masks. There was no kind of protection of any kind. And then they did an x-ray, and they didn't. They turned the wheelchair so I couldn't see the x-ray while they were looking at it. And with all of my strength of my right hand, I turned the wheelchair by pulling on the wheel one little pull at a time in these tiny little wow. nudges and turned my, turned my head just enough to see the x-ray. And basically, I had a white lung and a black lung. Wow. Wow. I had had pneumonia on one side of my chest. The other side was clear. I was getting by on on one and a half lungs, basically. What kills people with COVID-19 is they get a bilateral respiratory infection. Both lungs fill up with fluid. And there's nothing or very little that can stop it. And those respirators is what keeps people alive. We have like, what, 30 in our county, something like that? Uh, respirators? Yeah. I don't know. And, it's a and small those number. Those are used for older people with other kinds of conditions. In fact, SARS is an uh, acronym for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, so that makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's why it's a cousin, yeah. whatever. And that's, that's what we've got here. We've got 
um, severe acute respiratory failure is what's occurring right now in massive numbers in Italy. And now Italy today, the day of this recording, Italy has surpassed China in deaths. And you might have the numbers in front of you, but Italy's population is insignificant compared to the population of China. But more people have died in in Italy from this disease than in China. Yeah, I think I yesterday. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think yesterday, 368 people died one day. Yeah, in Italy. I'm wondering if Asia and China in particular are way more, you know, pre- prepared mm-hmm. for these types of things because they've experienced it in way higher numbers than we have. Yeah, and they're more autocratic. Um, I got to read this. I went and uh, watched Bill Bryson the other day. Uh, He's a great um, nonfiction author. He wrote a great, great book called The Body. Uh-huh. And uh, so he wrote about the virus in this, and he writes, A virus in the immortal words of the British Nobel laureate Peter Medwar is a piece of bad news wrapped up in a protein. For years, Britain operated a research facility called the Common Cold Unit, but it closed in 1889 without ever finding a cure. It did, however, conduct some interesting experiments, and one of volunteers fitted with a device that leaked a thin fluid from his nostrils at the same rate that a running nose would. The volunteer then socialized with other volunteers as if at a cocktail party. Unknown to any of them, the fluid contained a dye visible only under ultraviolet light. <laughs> Perfect. Wow. And that was switched on after they had been mingling for a while. The participants were astounded to discover that the dye was everywhere on the hands, head, and upper body of every participant, and on glasses, doorknobs, sofa cushions, bowls of nuts, you name it. The average adult touches his face 16 times an hour. An hour, and each and each of those touches transferred the pretend pathogen from nose to snackle to innocent third party to doorknob to innocent fourth party, and so on until pretty much everyone and everything bore a festive glow of imaginary yeah. snot. <laughs> I thought that was such a cool uh, depiction of how we spread viruses and how easy it is to spread. I mean, it's going to happen. Yeah. Not now. I think we're doing pretty well, but in a normal circumstance. Right. It's fascinating to see how unsanitary our normal existence is now that now that we're practicing any degree of caution. And I I actually think most of the time that's just fine. Um, really, if we have if we have modest exposure to all the viruses out there, that's part of what gives us herd immunity. Um, but it should be occurring gradually. And it should be occurring kind of at a uh, kind of a metered and um, not in any kind of concentrated fashion. So you don't want any population to be completely what's the word like not exposed to a virus because if they're if they're not exposed at all, they're vulnerable to that virus. Yeah. Whereas um, what we have going on right now is we're watching basically so many aspects of our lives contribute to the spread of viruses yeah so as we wrap up here because we're actually over an hour (laughs) which is awesome thank you so much for your time i'm just getting started here let's go (laughs) i mean we should totally have another episode where we talk about teachers how we're dealing with this because we didn't even do that right now it's it's, yeah i want to hear ideas from you guys by the way well i'd love to come back and talk about the economy yeah, I think we didn't even get to that. 
we need to talk about what this is going to do to the economy. And I, I will share with you my hypothesis, and then we, we could talk about it in more detail another time. But basically, it, with regards to the effect on the economy, the effect on the economy is uncertain. And a lot of folks right now are really talking about the effects on the economy as if they are definite. Because we're closing all of these things, we're shutting everything down, and therefore everything is destroyed. But the reality is a lot of things are going to just be delayed. Yeah, They're going to be delayed and they're going to come back later. Um, what the federal government and other governments can do is create programs and provide funds that are going to let those things happen later. And if that works, we'll be able to dig our way out of this. If it's like the crash of 29, the government will screw it up and <laughs> keep the economy from coming back rapidly. And it will take a long, long time. Yeah. I totally want to talk about that because it yeah. seems like Republicans have turned a corner. Does it not? I've seen a few movements from the Senate, but I'm not sure if that's like enough. What they're doing is enough. I, I actually think that that uh, what is occurring right now in the federal government of the United States with regards to the bipartisan acceptance of the acknowledgement of the federal role in staving off economic decline is an absolute admission of the vital role that the federal government plays in a capitalist economy. A capitalist economy requires those levels of that, that scaffolding and that safety net and that, um, that degree of having a sense that there are rules and that there are safeguards and that you can trust that things are going to turn out okay. But we'll talk about that more another time. Oh, I'm totally yeah. you. So as we wrap up, then, like, what can people do practically to avoid contracting the virus or potentially spreading it? I, I think the most important thing is if everybody's pretending like they already have it, we're going to be a lot safer. If you pretend you already have it, you're going to avoid that going over to those friends' houses or um, going into that store you don't need to go into. If you do get together with somebody you know, you're going to keep some degree of distance because if you imagine you already have it, then you're going to be you're going to be taking those safeguards. Yeah, um, I'm going to bring up something very loony that I go for it. earlier. Tell you, I like this idea of you get these cloth gloves and you walk around with these things that mm -hmm. are drenched in alcohol or any kind of antiviral. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, am I loco? I'm going to disinfect my whole house. So. Yeah, but we primarily, or we, one of the main ways that we transfer it is through our hands. And we, touching that's a good them. way just to stop that in its tracks. But that's yeah. out of the box thinking and pretty goofy. But anyway, it's just an idea. Before we go, I'm going to shoot down your gloves. Um, <laughs> so one, alcohol evaporates at a super high rate. And... Um, it is the part of, uh, like, if you have some kind of disinfectant that contains alcohol, like a antibacterial something, or if you're actually just using rub rubbing alcohol itself, it evaporates super rapidly. So in no time at all, your gloves are just going to be gloves with water in them. 
and your gloves with water in them are going to be like glue for coronavirus. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know about I, – I haven't seen the duration. Um, and a lot of these uh, this research is premature in terms of how long coronavirus lasts on surfaces. But it appears from the research that's starting to come out that some of the factors with why coronavirus is so bad is because of how long – people are contagious, how long it lasts on surfaces. It's just extremely contagious, and it's possibly more contagious than all kinds of other things that we're used to. But if you're walking around with those wet, soggy gloves spreading the virus, <laughs> yeah. that, that could be problematic. Yeah, I totally can see that. And I'm just, I think this is time to think out of the box. And who knows, maybe they can develop something that uh, viruses totally die um, in contact with, of course, they'll just mutate anyway. So, yeah, maybe it's time to think inside the box. We just need to be able to build individual boxes for each human to (laughs) To be inside of, to remain in for the remainder of their existence. Yeah. So we all just stayed indoors for two to three weeks, no human interaction, no going out. You think that would flatten the curve? I, I tell you what, um, life is about experiences this is one we're going to remember for sure. That's true. Like a flashbulb memory, sort of. Only a long, long <laughs> flashbulb. We're, we're also going to remember before coronavirus and after coronavirus. Yeah. BCV. Yeah. By the way, we have to be happy that we're memor- memorializing it right yeah. now. I'm pretty stoked about that for my great, great. Grandkids. They'll check out this podcast yeah, right here. We have to. I want to go around the city right now with a video camera. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks Costco. for having me on, gentlemen. You guys are pros. Well, thank you, Luke, for joining us on our humble little podcast. Joel and I are practicing social distancing in the same room, but uh, yeah. you're miles away. Very safe. We appreciate it. And, and remember, much. take everything I said and we said with a grain of salt. We're not pros, uh, we're deriving information from other sources. And uh, also doing so in part in a flawed manner. Mm. <laughs> but, but informed and intelligent, hopefully. So thank you, Luke. Thanks, Luke. Let me, uh... Thanks, guys. All right. So that was quite the... Uh, Fascinating conversation. Mm. Luke Laurie, brilliant. He doesn't want to be called an expert, but very knowledgeable. Knows more about science than the average man. For sure. In this segment of our show, we like to discuss something we're reading or watching or what have you encountered this week, Joel? I'm going to bring up four things really, really quickly because that was a long episode. Uh, Tame Impala, great band. My sons just watched them in concert right during coronavirus, the very, probably the last big show in LA before they had to shut it down at the forum. Um, And real estate, my favorite band at the moment for the last probably five years, I've been to see their shows several times. Just came out with the, I love their album. It's growing on me. I didn't like it as much as first, but they're becoming more of a jam band, which if you're interested in that, check them out. Um, Oh, what was, oh yeah. So three things only. I watched Frozen 2 last night. Oh, man, Disney just is amazing. They did it again. It was so good. So good. Watch it, and it's out. I think they did it early for all of us who are cooped up, so 
please go watch it. And even if you don't like kiddie shows, watch it. It's on it's on Disney Plus. That's yeah. how I watched it. Uh, my daughter, you know, she's only oh, sixteen man. months old, and she was glued. Oh, she loves so Olaf. Good. And, yeah. What do you got? So I want to keep it short, but this could be a whole episode here. I watched the Hulu docu series entitled Hillary. Oh man, I can't wait. It was. I wish I had Hulu. So fascinating, and you know, Hillary is an elusive figure. She only lets people so far into her yeah. life. She's very private, but they're able to go into somewhat of her life, into her relationship with Bill, and you see like how dedicated she is to pursuing her um, degree. You see her in her law profession, working in Congress. She actually worked on the uh, the fledgling um, impeachment of President Nixon. And working with children and then being the first lady of, um, you know, the governor uh, in Arkansas and then being first lady of the United States. She's just tirelessly working. And then running for president, it's like people thought she was cold and distant and inauthentic. And I thought that was so fascinating that here's someone who spent her whole life working. Mm. And because of her lack of charisma or lack of magnetism or whatever, people didn't vote for her. And how many lives would have been spared if she was our president right now? Exactly. I mean, you have to assume it would be in the thousands, right? But just looking right now at the coronavirus issue, right? she would not have handled it the way that Trump has no. been handling it. You have to. She would have really excellent scientists who would have sounded the alarm way earlier. Yeah. And I think as well, the other part of it is because they go back and forth, you know, the 2016 election and then her personal life. I think it's kind of a, it's a warning for us today. Yeah. Because... Here in 2016, you know, she had one, on one side Bernie, on the other side Trump. And they kind of represent both sides to this populist coin. Yeah. And I think Joe Biden is in that same spot yep. that Hillary is in right now. Well, we've come around. It's a good thing. So hopefully we learned our lesson. You know, moderates, you know, they're more likely to carry the day than someone on the fringe. Yep. And uh, we need more purple people, red and blue. I yeah, think. I totally agree. Even if, in the end, um, more liberal ideas work, we have to bring more conservative people along. And yeah. it takes time. So Compromise. You yep. compromise, compromise your way forward to make progress. So, that's, yeah, that was, Can't I recommend it. Back to your series. Really, thank you. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for joining us on our humble little podcast, especially with such a serious topic. You could do us a huge favor by subscribing to our show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iTunes. It's crazy that there might be somebody like in Iceland right now listening to us, Jose. <laughs> I know. It's, it's kind of fun. I'm over my embarrassment. Okay. <laughs> and be sure to rate our show and leave a review. Your rating will help others find the show. Be sure to find us at Facebook, Instagram, Conversation on Tap. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Cheers. Cheers.